I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. One of the things that uh, I know lots of farmers and city people were commenting on last year was the absence of of a of an animal that we were so used an insect that we, I don't even know if it's an insect. Our, our guest is going to have to tell we'll us. Find out. Um, the absence of the friendly monarch butterfly. Mm. Um, a look, at butterflies are just fascinating creatures, mm-hmm. and monarchs were kind of prized when you saw one. You kind of pointed it out to a friend because they're so beautiful, mm-hmm. and they they make their home here for a while as they go back and forth between the northern climes of the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. So lots of us were wondering, why has the monarch gone away, it Mm. seems, from our fields and from our Mm. parks? And this morning we have on with us Dr. Tyler Flockhart from the University of Guelph in Ontario because they have just released a new research study, uh, a report, that, that talks about that big decline in the monarchs and why it's happened. Good morning, Tyler. How are you this morning? Good morning, Sylvia. I'm very well. Thank you. Oh, you sound like you're right next door. He does. That's terrific. I love it. Well, Tyler, thank you again so much for being available uh, to talk with us on Deep Roots Radio this morning because our effort here is always to try to help our listeners connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown. And those dots can extend a whole lot further than we sometimes think. And so many of us were lamenting, you know, where's the pretty monarch that we were so used to seeing crossing our fields and, and fluttering over our flowers? Have we, in fact, seen a big decline in the monarch? Yeah, we sure have. Um, the, the population of monarchs in eastern North America, so as you said, the ones that go between Mexico, the United States, and Canada, they've actually declined by about 90% over the past two decades. 90%? Wow. 90%, yeah. Oh my gosh! I, I hadn't. I guess I hadn't realized, even after reading some of the reports, that it had been such a serious drop. Yeah, it's it's quite noticeable. And these these are that assessment is based on uh, a census that is done every December in Mexico. And when they're in Mexico, they gather uh, in high elevation forests and they cluster on trees by the millions. And instead of going around and counting the butterflies because there's too many of them, the biologists walk the area that are uh, covered in butterflies and then add those different colonies together to get a total area. So the area of butterflies in Mexico has declined by 90%. So the population as a whole has declined by 90%. Mm. Oh, my gosh. So tell me a little bit about that migratory pattern. They go from where to where and during what times of year? Sure. So the migratory pattern that we're used to seeing in the fall in particular stretches anywhere from the northern edge of their breeding range, which uh, comes into southern Ontario and southern Quebec uh, and southern Manitoba in Canada, and as far east as 
uh, areas of North Dakota, South Dakota. So that population in the fall, starting the beginning of September, starts heading south, and they're going in a southwest direction towards central Mexico. And it moves at a, at a constant speed, and it's quite predictable um, in terms of the date when the largest movement of butterflies will happen. So it starts, as I said, in southern Ontario around the beginning of September, uh, and by the time it reaches southern Texas, which is the southern extent of their breeding distribution, it's near the middle of October, so about six weeks later. Wow. And those butterflies continue another... Um, 1,500 kilometers. I'm speaking in kilometers because we're on the metric system up here. Um, but they continue about another 1,500 kilometers to these overwintering forests, which are about 100 kilometers west of Mexico City. All wow. right. So when do we see them start kind of going back north? Right. So they, they arrive in Mexico in November, and they start heading north again uh, near the end of March, about mm. four months later. And they reach southern Texas right around the beginning of April. Hmm. Okay. Now, is it true, Tyler? I seem to have read or heard somewhere that the monarchs that come back in the spring are the offspring of the ones that left in the fall. Is that true? That's right. So the butterflies that arrive in Mexico each year are completely distant from the ones that were there the year before. Somewhere in the order of three to four generations. Wow. Which is really neat when you think about the biology of how these animals can get to the same place every year when they haven't been there before. <laughs> but you're right. As they come out of Mexico, um, these butterflies that have overwintered are quite old. I mean, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of eight months old. Uh, and they're reproductive, and they reach Texas, and they start laying their eggs. But they don't last too long. And most of those butterflies have probably died by the beginning of May. But those eggs that they've laid in Texas and are developing into caterpillars and finally into butterflies, they continue to migrate north. And as those butterflies are, are migrating north, they're laying eggs as well. And all of those eggs will produce another generation that likewise will reproduce until the, until the fall, when all of the butterflies uh, are emerging and they're actually in a reproductive diapause. So depending on the latitude, you can have anywhere from uh, maybe three and probably four different generations over the summer mm. that eventually build up this large superpopulation that flies back to Mexico. Okay. Now, Tyler, just so that people uh, who may have just joined us uh, will know, we're speaking this morning on Deep Roots Radio with Dr. Tyler Flockhart, who uh, has just completed his, is not just completed, who has completed his Ph.D. in ecology at the University of Guelph, where he developed a year-round population model of the migration of the monarch butterfly and he's just let us know that there has been a 90 percent decline in this population in the last 20 years uh, which to me is just startling so i mean why why this decline is it is it you know global climate change or, or what are the factors well that's that's been a question that's been on everybody's mind for a long time and the thing with monarch butterflies is that we know generally where they move through the year, and we know that they face different threats in those different locations. So the idea was that one or more of those threats was driving this decline, but we didn't really have the tools to figure out which of those threats was having the biggest impact. And traditionally, it was considered to be in Mexico uh, and deforestation, 
And more recently, the focus has shifted to the breeding grounds and uh, changes in milkweed plants. Okay, so what's the significance of milkweeds as far as monarch butterflies go? Milkweed plants are the only plants where females will lay their eggs and the only plants that the caterpillars, caterpillars can feed on. Wow, it's that specific. Yeah, so they are they are a specialist when it comes to the food required for the larvae. The adults are are generalists in the sense that they can drink uh, nectar from a wide variety of flowers, but the caterpillars are specific. They can only feed on milkweed plants. So it really catches them at a specific time in their life cycle, and if they aren't fed during that part, that's the end of that. That's right, yeah. Hmm. Now, how long are they in that caterpillar stage? Well, it, because they're insects, it's dependent on temperature. So they develop based on what the temperature in the local environment is. Ah. But generally, it takes about two weeks from the time that an egg is laid until that caterpillar pupates. And then somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 days, um, the, the pupae will eclose as a butterfly. So it's almost a month between the time when the egg is laid until the butterfly um, emerges and can fly away. Okay, and when you say pupates, that means that it, it, becomes a, it develops the cocoon? That's right. Well, a, a chrysalis, yes. So insects go through um, all the same stages. They go egg, larvae, pupae, adults. Okay. Hmm. All right. So, yes, the, that is, that's the immobile stage. That's right. Are the uh, um, cocoons or whatever... Uh, are they uh, made on the milkweed as well, then? They can be, um, but usually the caterpillars will move uh, away from the milkweed plants. But to be honest with you, we don't really have very good information on that life stage because they are so difficult to find. They are hmm. they are a really nice, beautiful green with um, with gold flecking on them. They're absolutely beautiful, but they are next to impossible to find if you're out in the field. Hmm. Huh. Okay. So here we've got this situation where the caterpillar only will thrive and go through a successful stage if it's on milkweed. Now, I have a small family farm. We are 100% grass-fed beef people. Um, Dave Corbett was 30 years or more a dairy farmer and is now doing grass-fed beef uh, on how many acres have you got, Dave? We've got about 100. About 100, and yeah. I've got about 72. And I've got milkweed, mm-hmm. you know, in my fields. Uh, Dave, have you got yeah. it in yours? Yep. Okay. So what's the deal? I mean, some of us have milkweed and some of us don't. What is the problem? What's happened to the milkweed on perhaps other farms? Well, our, our yeah, so our research suggests that milkweed loss is probably driving this decline, and ah. milkweed loss happens from a variety of of different factors um, and we're talking about typical land conversions, so things like urbanization, um, the replanting of forests or the loss of forests, or the transition of grasslands to different land uses and that that includes agricultural, particularly row crops hmm. all right, so okay, so you're you're saying that in your study you have kind of found that milkweed is kind of the the big factor that's right yeah it's the factor that's driving this population decline the the loss of milkweed is driving this population decline and what has and so is there a tie 
I mean, right, okay, so there's a decline in the milkweed. There's not as much out there, there as there used to be. The major reason for that decline is what of milkweed? Well, it, over the last 15 years, it's been uh, conversion to genetically modified row crops. That's the primary driver over the past uh, 15 years or so. Why would that do that? Well, the adoption of these these crops um, are they're herbicide resistant corn and soybean primarily and the manner in which um, farmers control the weeds on their land and farmers have always done this of course they've always been trying to manage the, the number of, of weeds in their fields because sure. it influences their crop the technology has changed and because of that they're actually more efficient at removing the milkweed from the fields hmm. so whereas traditionally uh, you would find low densities of milkweeds in agricultural fields. Uh, now you have virtually none because huh. of that efficiency of, of removing the weeds. And included in those weeds are milkweed plants. All right. So l- let me just break this down into city talk, which is kind of where I'm from. <laughs> I'm originally from the Bronx, Tyler. Um, oh. So... Because of genetically modified crops, and in this instance we're talking about crops that are able to withstand being doused with herbicides. So, That's right. yep. so they're genetically modified, so if you splash a lot of, of chemical on them, the weed dies, but the plant, the food crop plant remains. That's right. When you've got a a lot of this herbicide then being splashed around, it is killing all of the milkweed instead of leaving some that would have at least thrived using kind of older cultivation or chemical means. That's right, in those agricultural fields. In those agricultural fields. So so I know I've got milkweed uh, in my pastures um, and along the edges because I don't use any uh, any chemicals, uh, we we don't raise row crops, and that's still found on all farms. But it's when you get into the into the row crop itself that, in fact, in the past there still was milkweed in there. There was, yeah, and that contributed to the health and and well being of monarch butterflies and other all other kinds of insects and animals that. Uh, could traverse a field. That's right. And importantly, there was some research uh, done around 2000 that suggested that those milkweed plants in those agricultural fields were actually used um, more than milkweed plants that were found in, say, pastures, which is really interesting. The number of eggs per plant was actually higher in those agricultural fields than in, say, natural settings. Hmm. That's startling. What? It really is. I know. Yeah. Why? Any clue as to why that would be? I I don't know why that would be. Um, I mean, I could suggest a couple of ideas, but it was a real surprise when that research came out that that was in fact the case. That you know you have these low density uh, milkweeds at low densities in these fields, but besides that, those plants were being used more than other plants, suggesting that if you remove those plants, it's sort of a double whammy. You have Mm -hmm. the influence of removing those plants, plus they seem to be really, really productive for monarch butterflies. That, yeah, that's got me both, like, like, like Dave Corbett going, huh, 
Okay. Okay. So, Dave Corbett, you've, you're a longtime farmer. What What do you make of this? I don't know what to make of it because what's running through my mind is, uh, is there a way for us to uh, propagate milkweed in such a way that uh, would allow for the reproduction of monarchs uh, like we do for other species? And I don't know if that's a possibility or not. You know... Before we get to that, because that's that's ultimately the question I want to get to. Okay. You know, what do we do? Let me ask you, uh, Tyler. So we've had this large decline. Uh, do you see it continuing, or do you see it kind of plateauing? Where are we in in that in that in the state of the population of monarchs? Well, the. The research that we've done suggests that over the next uh, 100 years, we expect this population to continue to decline um, by 14 percent. So it suggests that, yeah, if things continue as they are right now, um, the population is going to continue to decrease. Hmm. Now, once you get to a certain population size, I mean, what's the threat of extinction? Right, and and that's the real question. So we need to be really careful here because when you talk about extinction, you're talking about extinction of, of a species, and we're not talking about extinction of monarch butterflies because monarch butterflies are very widespread. There's uh, three different populations in North America, and they're found in the tropics. Okay. But what we're talking about is a risk to a population, and the population that we're talking about is this one that moves between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Got it. So... We're at risk of losing that population. We're at risk of losing that migratory phenomenon. And as you said, when population size starts to get down, those populations are more prone to random events. And by random events, I'm talking mostly about weather events that mm. we as a society have no control over. We can't control if the drought is going to be long this year and short next year, or if the storms going through Mexico are going to be very light or very heavy, because all of those are not within our control. But smaller populations have a higher risk of being removed completely when those events go through compared to larger populations. Sure. sure. Are the sense. other populations you mentioned at risk as well, or are the habitats and their needs different? The, the habitats that they require are the same with respect to milkweed plants. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's a population in southern Florida, which is there year-round, uh, and that population seems to be more or less stable. Um, the population in western North America that migrates between uh, the overwintering areas in California and as far north as southern British Columbia, that population has declined substantially as well over the past two decades. Mm. Uh, maybe not by 90%, but still that population is in decline. But throughout the tropics, um, this popula- or this, this species seems to be doing fine. Hmm. Wow. So the population most at risk is this eastern population. Got it. You know, Tyler, why the interest, why your interest in the monarch? Well, my, my background is actually, uh, I did a lot of research on birds when I was younger and particularly migratory birds. And the loss of migratory animals across the world is staggering. And we don't know why these populations are declining. Hmm. And, you know, when you think about things like birds, we're talking about billions of birds that move between um, 
the tropics and the Canadian boreal forest, for example. And you can talk about millions of Pacific salmon that move between oceans uh, and upstreams to, to reproduce. And these have ecosystem benefits, and they also have commercial benefits as well. But being able to isolate which of the factors is influencing that population the most is really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So that was the angle that I took uh, when I started my PhD. And monarch butterflies are one of the best-studied insects in the world. And Mm. it's one of the few species where we actually have this complete knowledge across the annual cycle to be able to build these really complex models, to be able to pinpoint the locations and the parts of the annual cycle that are causing populations to decline. Wow. You know, it, it, it is kind of interesting. Uh, I guess it was over a year ago I was able to um, be part of a small group um, that uh, listened to uh, a scientist from the University of Minnesota uh, talk about bird migrations and the, the impact that um, cultivation, cultivated cropland has on those, on those uh, species. And uh, just how many of the uh, birds that we've been used to seeing are, are becoming rarities in our area. Yeah, you don't realize that um, these migratory animals really have fairly specific habitat requirements and food requirements in order to thrive, to continue thriving. They so, do. And, and they have them at different points of the year. So when you think about understanding if populations are in decline and then taking action to address those declines, People might be taking actions in places that they think are, are really beneficial, but it might have little impact on that population decline that's happening. All right. So, so this, if this we turn it back towards the monarch butterfly, they've taken substantial steps in Mexico to address the deforestation issue, but this, this population continues to decline. So then the question comes up, okay, well, why? If we've addressed what we thought was influencing this population the most, why is this population continuing to decline? Well, that, get back, that gets back to the, the question that uh, Dave Corbett here asked earlier. So what can we do? Well, I think on the short term, we need to look at addressing or stopping this annual loss of milkweed that seems to be happening through um, land use changes. And that, I think, for the monarch butterfly, that's the most important first step. And those things, I think, can be addressed uh, relatively quickly because we have lots of places where we could put milkweed and lots of management that we could uh, implement that wouldn't be that disruptive um, generally because they happen on, on public lands. Uh. But to address this massive uh, milkweed loss that we've seen over the last 15 years, that's going to be a really big challenge. And how to do that is not entirely clear. Well, I can certainly understand that. I mean, we've got a, an entire ag system that currently um, is is married to the use of of many GMO crops, and and addressing that would would take a lot of people working together. I, you know, I'm sure there there is no farmer who is happy to hear about the loss of the butterfly, and I would suspect lots of people are quite surprised that it was the milkweed within the crop land that was the most um, helpful to the butterfly. So I suspect there are a lot of people that are probably taking a look at this study and saying, holy cow, you know, I had no idea, and I wonder what it is that we can do. Are there any steps being taken 
to uh, restore milkweed? Well, they there are, but they're right now they're happening sort of on a local a local level, mm-hmm. local initiatives. But I know that the uh, population numbers that came out of Mexico this past winter uh, really raised some alarm bells and started the wheels in motion for this to maybe be talked about at at higher levels to sort of come up with a plan about how to address this and and not only the declines of monarch butterflies but to look at losses of pollinating insects generally Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know the details of that there hasn't been any sort of information released but when um, the leaders of Mexico, Canada, and the United States met in February. They all agreed that conservation of monarch butterflies was something that they were going to address. So I hope that news on that is imminent, but I really do think that in order to address this huge loss of milkweed that we've seen across the range, it sort of needs to be guided from, in some form, from a plan from the top, I guess, mm-hmm. on how to do that. Because local efforts, while they are really, really important, particularly in the short term, it's, I mean, we're talking about a loss of, we estimate, 1.5 billion milkweed plants. That's a huge wow. number. And how you address that loss can't be done on a, on a local scale. It has to, there has to be a vision. There has to be a, a plan in place to know how we're going to address that. From what you've said about <coughs> the, uh, uh, the breeding of these, too, that milkweed needs to really be across the whole country, doesn't it? It's not just one area. A- absolutely, yeah. So because these butterflies are moving over multiple generations, putting milkweed in certain areas will have a certain uh, benefit to the population as a whole compared to others. Mm-hmm. So if you think about which part of the cycle is the most uh, is most important, uh, it comes up that you know, the Midwest seems to be the most important, but just behind the Midwest are, are areas in uh, the southern United States. So we sort of lay out two two areas that we think have the, the greatest potential for um, helping the butterfly population with restoration efforts, and that's uh, areas in the Midwest in particular and areas uh, in the southern United States. Wow. You know, we have to close up here pretty quickly, Tyler, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your the research done uh, that you uh, worked on to participate in and um, just about an issue that many, perhaps many of us didn't realize had such deep roots um, in our agricultural systems. And, and for some reason, I'm feeling like this study and the information that you presented really is the tip of an iceberg on a really huge issue. Yeah, I, I really hope so. I really hope that this motivates us to to start acting and making good decisions. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. We've been talking this morning with Dr. Tyler Flockhart, who is a PhD um, in ecology at the University of Guelph in Ontario. And we're talking about a new released report on the ties between the huge, the dramatic decline of the monarch butterfly population and the ways in which we are operating uh, ag on a very large scale in North America. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Uh, Flockhart. I will be posting a link to your study um, today so that people can read it directly. Thank you for being on the show. I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you. You as well. Visit my website, 
BronxToBarn.com to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.